Okay, so the first reading's from Exodus 15, um, starting at verse 11, going to verse 18. Um, and it's on page 74, if you've got a visitor's Bible. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you, br- you brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Our second reading tonight is Revelation 7, which is on page 1291 in the Church Bible. Uh, 1 to 17, which I think is the whole chapter. It is. Cool, so Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every, every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm, tree, palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Good evening, everyone. Am I hard of hearing, or was there a response? Good evening, everybody. Good on you, kids. Well done. Okay, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7 tonight. If you've got your Bibles with you or you have access to a Bible or a 
what do they call those things, tablets or phones or whatever with the Bible on it, now would be a good time to have it in front of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great God and sometimes, Lord, our mind diminishes you as we consider the things that are troubling us day by day, the things we are responsible for, the things we have to overcome. Help us tonight, Lord, to see you as you really are, the God who is in control of everything, the one whose promises never fail and the one who is leading his people home. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Cyclones. Who's been through a cyclone? All right, well, you'll have to back me up. That's all I'm asking. This morning I, was, I had a dream run. Nobody had ever been through a cyclone. Cyclones must be terrible things to endure. We who have never experienced them can only imagine what it must be like. When footage of the devastated towns and the cities is released, damage from the winds and rain mirror footage from Hiroshima after the nuclear explosion happened at the end of World War II. Seen from space, hurricanes or cyclones appear as a massive spiral covering a vast area. And you might remember there were two in tandem, Irma and Jose, not related in any way, I don't believe, but seen from space in the Gulf of Mexico this year. And it had frightening potential. You saw one, with the, Irma was the larger of the two and Jose was behind her and they were both heading for Florida in the United States of America. Now I think Irma hit and really caused a lot of trouble but I think Jose might have been a bit diverted. With cyclones, winds are measured at 200 kilometres per hour plus sometimes, and when it goes past that, the recording equipment can either fail or be destroyed because they just can't stand the intensity of the winds. And with Category 4 and 5 cyclones, wind gusts are believed to reach three, near 300 kilometres an hour, so you can imagine the damage that they would do at the height of their destructive power. Tragically, in these circumstances, lives are lost, mass evacuations occur, and the subsequent estimate of the value of the damage reaches into millions or even billions of dollars. I suppose in the United States it would be billions. All the infrastructure of the cities and towns is broken or totally destroyed, so you've got no phones, no water, no electricity, nothing. Just whatever's left of your house. And that's when the rebuild starts. Now, despite the danger of these powerful storms, people are fascinated by them and some do foolish things like chasing after them to try and measure the intensity of the winds and sometimes they get caught in the middle of them. My fascination with these kinds of storms for tonight is the eye of the storm. And the eye of the storm is that thing you can see when you see them from space with a spiral going around, there's a black dot in the middle. And I believe, and only those people who have been through these can tell me, that when the eye of the storm actually passes over, things go a little quiet and then the back end of the cyclone comes along and starts up doing exactly the same thing. Is that what happens? Thank you. I feel better already. <laughs> Why am I talking about cyclones? Chapter 7 is to the book of the Revelation what the eye of the storm is to the storm. In it, we have a breather from all the swirling chaos and the judgment forecasts held in store for a world rebellious and ultimately doomed to destruction. John's vision changes to address the situation, not for the world and what's going to happen to him, but specifically for the people of God. And for those who put our trust in God through Jesus, this chapter 
has great comfort and significance. In the time that I've got, I can't explain what different scholars think about the imagery and the symbolism of Revelation. But just let me say that overall, Revelation is a message of encouragement and comfort to the faithful of John's time facing the tyranny of the Roman world in their new faith. And so by extension to us facing the same thing from modern tyranny in today's world. Let's quickly set the scene. The book of Revelation is a revelation from Jesus given to John on the island of Patmos. You know where Patmos is? Just off Tasmania. No. It's, it's an island to the west of the west coast of the current country of Turkey. And the seven churches that Jesus addresses in this revelation are on the west coast, down the west coast of Turkey. So it's almost as if John's standing on his pulpit at Patmos and preaching to these people over there. But at any rate, that's just the way mine works. My mind works. In chapter 1, verse 3 of Revelation, it says that the, the revelation is a blessing for those who hear it and read it and take it to heart. Jesus, in the first three chapters, has given his verdict on those seven churches, of, uh, churches in Asia. Chapter 4 takes us with John to a vision in the throne room of God, the creator God, where he sits on the throne, reigning over the whole universe, material and spiritual. The very place where God is continuously praised and worshipped by the host of heaven. There is where John is shown what must take place. By that I believe that John sees the things that help him to understand the world's situation for his time and prepare him for what God has in store for the future. Visions he has in chapter 5 and 6 involve a scroll. Now you know what a scroll is, don't you? It's a rolled up piece of paper that they used to pull out like a toilet roll to read. They didn't have books in those days. That scroll and whose job it is to open the seven seals on it and what happens after these seals are broken. Now Jesus, in the vision that John has, is seen as the unique sacrificial lamb. And because of his sacrifice to atone for the sins of all mankind, and that includes you and me, he is the focus of these events. He receives the scroll from God the Father and is the one to break the seals. In handing the scroll to Jesus, God hands all authority to him. The breaking of the four seals releases the four horsemen of the apocalypse who you've probably heard of and their task was to wreak havoc upon the earth. At the breaking of the fifth seal, John sees the martyrs murdered for their faith waiting for justice and judgment and crying to God for an end to that wait. The opening of the sixth seal reveals in John's vision the end of history and the panic and the terror of those without a relationship with God through Jesus. It's very exciting reading. I recommend that you have a look at it and see what you think. In chapter 7 we see the destiny of those who remain faithful to God in the midst of a broken and divided world ruled by terror and tyranny. The, the Christians of John's time were persecuted by the Jews who wanted to kill off this so-called cult that had been established by Jesus. And you remember that Saul, who later became Paul and wrote probably the bulk of the letters in the New Testament, he was so zealous to destroy Christians, he went up to Damascus to try and bring them back to Jerusalem to be either imprisoned or killed. So he was ruthlessly trying to destroy the cult of Christianity, as were others. 
Not only were they subjected to this, this, the Christians, but they also lived under the brutality of the Roman world. The Romans dealt with unrest and rebellion ruthlessly and also sought to stop the spread of any new religion or movement that might threaten their rule. It's any, is it any wonder that this letter from John was written as Jesus sought to reassure the faithful in the face of what seemed to be a world out of control? Have you ever felt that the events of this world are out of control and the future looks bleak? I know I have. I remember as a child in the 1960s being quite afraid during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The fact that my glass half-empty father had warned us to prepare to duck as the missiles came over might have had a bit to do with that. Or the media giving a moment-by-moment account of the position of the Russian and American fleets could have also have added to that a little bit of history for the time. Uh, the Yanks found out that the Russians had missiles on Cuba within range of the American mainland and they objected and the Russians were resupplying Cuba with more missiles so the American fleet went out to meet the ships and we were told if the, they came together there could be a conflict and if the conflict began World War III was underway. Um, and so every day we heard again and again what the Russians and the Americans were doing as they were... Um, posturing for position. That's the kind of thing that can make people feel that the world is out of control, that there is nothing that can be done to prevent catastrophe. Nothing's changed. In the reporting of today's events, are you as disturbed by what you see and hear as I am? In the midst of the chaos seen by John, one thing stands. God is in control of history. The four angels of verse 1 are holding back the destructive power of the winds just for one purpose and that purpose is to protect the plan of God for his beloved children. A real sense of peace comes amidst the visions of fear and chaos that went before in the previous chapters. Nothing is to commence in the final destruction of this fallen world until all of God's children are safe. There is to be an accounting of all the ones who belong to him so that they are reserved for protection. I want to read verses 2 and 3 to you. That's what, this will just reinforce what I just said about what they, what they were doing. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. That had to be done before anything else could take place. God has arranged that the faithful who are in Christ will be sealed for eternity. Their fate is to share in the celebration of Christ's victory around the throne of God, which you would have picked up from the passage as it was being read. Now, I once worked with a Jehovah's Witness colleague for three years and our relationship was marked by occasional spirited discussions, you could read arguments there, on the next few verses. Read verse 4, it says there, so I'll do that. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, and then below that is that list of all the tribes of Israel with the number 12,000, which if you add it up, uh, comes to 144,000. He, my Jehovah's Witness colleague, told me that he had no ambition to go to be with Jesus. 
He was content to live on the promised new earth under the new heaven. When I asked him how do they know who's in the 144,000, he said that each person just knows if they are not. And he wasn't one of them. So he was happy to live on the new heaven and the new earth. Those sorts of things are, can be misleading and are dangerous when we ignore the symbolic nature of this book and treat everything as literal and historically sequential, which it is not. The number 144,000 is not a literal number, it's a symbolic number, and 12 by 12,000 is an emphasis on that symbolism. It's a symbolic number indicating completeness. It means everyone that's meant to be there is there. No one slips through the net. Combine the vision of 144,000 people listed there with the vision of the vast multitude of verse 9 and the full picture comes into view. Here's verse 9 for you again. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, of course, who is our Saviour Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. All the faithful of the Old Testament and New Testament are the true Israel and are included in, a, in, in a, the vision that Jesus gave to John. God misses no one who's meant to be there. Let me read Galatians 3.26. I hope I can find it. Yeah, 3.26, here it is for you. To 29. You are all sons or daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, therefore, according to promise. God is in control. And all will be accomplished as he wills for the sake of his people and his children. His plans are that not one of those marked will miss out. Not forgotten. Now that must be a comfort to all of us who trust in Jesus, isn't it? You might feel insignificant in the kingdom of God but you're counted, you're amongst it, you're there. If your faith and trust is in Jesus. In this broken and divided world where mankind seems hell-bent on total self-destruction, we need to hear this. Parts of the world are in constant turmoil with staggering figures of death, destruction and persecution and even worse, persecution of our Christian brothers and sisters in places where Christianity is outlawed. I noticed on the internet this morning as I was looking at um, 9MSN that the Chinese have just blown up another Christian church over there just to remind the Christians that they don't really like Christianity. And so those Christians are devoid of a building to meet in and um, they now feel their lives may be in danger or their livelihood or their home or whatever may be just taken, all taken from them because they are marked as Christians. 
We sit in this lovely building. We have the freedom to talk freely about Jesus. And no one's going to come through that, well, I hope no one's going to come through that door and round us all up and put us into prison. But that's very well what they could face. So my brothers and sisters, let's pray for them when we have the opportunity to do so because not only in China but in other countries, that's what they live under. I could tell you another story. I need to get through this. Oh, you want to hear it now, don't you? <laughs> I saw a thing um, on uh, some Christian program about Bibles being smuggled into China. And uh, they, had, they recorded the Bibles being opened out of the carton and given out. And the Chinese people were crying and kissing the books. So hungry were they for the word of God. And yet we have them here freely. You can get who knows how many versions of them. And I think it's probably a salutary thing for us to remember that persecution is very real in countries like that, and not only China but in other countries, and that people's lives are in constant danger. And they may feel that God is not listening anymore. He doesn't know that they're around, but he does. He knows all of his children intimately, and that's what we have uh, in this chapter that um, John has seen from Jesus. That was a bit of a diversion, I'm sorry. Um, world leaders are posturing for power and advantage while in the most powerful nations in the world and some rogue nations, read Korea, those clamouring for leadership seem to be tyrants and conspirators. We can't trust leadership of nations these days to lead their people correctly. Is it any wonder that people question God? Has he lost interest? And have you gone silent, God? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that even though it's over 2,000 years since Jesus promised to return, there's a very good reason for the delay. And the, de the delay is that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Would you want Jesus to return before the people you are praying for have given their lives to him? The consequences for them would be disastrous. John's vision from Jesus is to reassure those struggling that all is well. Do not worry. Do not be disheartened. Do not be discouraged. God's plan is still being worked out. And let's all praise him for that. Well, it's good to know God's in control. How faithful are his promises. Politics in our time is a curious business, don't you think? Anyone here interested in politics? Probably not. I used to be keenly interested in politics in our country. I've gone from being keenly interested to being a jaded cynic. Election after election, policies made that have promised much for the people that have seen parties elected are cancelled once they win government. Yet the personal welfare of our politicians seems to go from strength to strength. One of the encouragements for me as I read this chapter is the reminder that God's promises never fail. Right from Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve sinned, the salvation plan of God was put into place back then and when it was, it had this chapter of Revelation in mind. Right then, God promised to deal with what man's sin had inflicted on the creation and that he would send someone to crush the head of Satan the serpent. And that person, as we know, is Jesus, as when he died on the cross for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. God re-emphasised his plan when he called Abraham to be the father of his saved people. 
In Genesis 12, 1-4, we see the Old Testament model of faith, Abraham. He obeyed God when he was asked to upstakes and move to Canaan on the promise of a multitude of descendants. And in Genesis 15, 1-6, Abraham's faith in God's promise is credited to him as righteousness. So I'll read this one. Genesis 15, 1-6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is the important verse. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was made righteous by his faith and trust in God. That was before Moses received the law. As we see Revelation chapter 7 unfold, it surely must indicate to us that God is true to his word and that nothing escapes his will. What began with Abraham's faith culminates in John's vision in Revelation chapter 7. The vast multitude before the throne in verse 9, sealed for eternal protection, reassures us that God is certainly in control and that his plan will ultimately prevail. The faithful under both covenants will join together around the throne to offer God endless praise and worship because of his grace and faithfulness. And you see that in verses 9 to 12 of that chapter. And for those of thinking that an eternity of that would get boring... I suggest we can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of the living creator God who created and sustained the universe and us as well and to see Jesus face to face. Stunning. And I don't think that word's even adequate. God is faithful to his word despite what world events and life struggles seem to indicate. He is not silent and faith in Christ will see us through safely. At the 8 o'clock service this morning and the 10 o'clock service this morning, I looked around and I thought to myself, is this age group right for rock concerts? And I think you are. So I can't say what I said to the people at 8 o'clock. But you know what I'm about to say when I tell you that when you go to these things, they put an armband around your wrist or a stamp on the back of your hand or some form of identification so that they know whether you're coming in or going out, that you've already paid and you belong there. In the Bible, Cain was also given a mark of protection by God after he murdered his brother Abel and was discovered and banished. Some religions have people marked with a red dot in the middle of their forehead as a means of identification. That's the Hindus. And some Catholics wear ash on their forehead on Ash Wednesday to show their participation in that particular religious feast. If we don't have that sort of mark sealing us for Christ, when will we receive it? Why can't I walk into this room and see everyone with, you with a specific mark that says, I belong to Jesus? And it would seem to indicate from our passage that was what was going to happen. In Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, 
Paul, through the Spirit of God, tells us that when we accepted Christ, we were sealed for God by the Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit is our mark, is our seal that we belong to Jesus. When we draw strength from him to live in this world of trouble, we will know that despite what happens to us, our destiny is to be before the throne of God, celebrating with Jesus the salvation victory over evil. That's not to say that life in this world will be trouble-free once we begin to trust Jesus. The fact that John has a vision of those killed for their faith in chapter 6, verse 9, shows that things might get really tough as we try to live our lives for Christ. But what it does say is that there's nothing in this universe, seen or unseen, that can separate us from the love of God if we are in Jesus, if our faith is in Jesus. And if you read Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, you'll read almost word for word what I've just said. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ if we belong to Jesus. Our final destination is guaranteed. We have nothing to fear if we have faith in Jesus. Though death may assail us, says the old hymn, they will stumble and fall. For though battles rage, we will trust in the Lord. That's where we should be. The party scene in this chapter is meant to, as a contrast to what we will all experience in life on this planet because Jesus has taken the guilt, he's taken the shame and the punishment that we deserve. Our God-given faith saves us from the wrath to come. And God is in the business of preserving us for eternity with him. John sees a vision of the two-beat worship sequence of heaven. This declaration of salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and the angels who are standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fall on their faces before the throne and worship God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And that goes on a lot. The vast multitude, which includes those of us in Jesus, clothed in white robes of his righteousness, we share in this and we wave palm branches in celebration. I'm not trying to paint a picture of what it exactly is like, but the atmosphere of what's going on. This is a time of great rejoicing. This is a time of great victory. This is when everything is cleared away. All the hopelessness, the pain, the suffering is gone. We are clean. We are there before God. And we are celebrating the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. Now they're waving palm branches because there was no latex at the time June had, uh, John had this vision, so no balloons. There was no balloons to be blown up. So. But the palm branches, they take the, they take the place of the balloons. That's just my opinion. Don't read it as part of the scriptures. There's a party going on in heaven in this vision and it's meant to encourage us to have faith in and trust God and to keep us keeping on. That's what it's all about. To keep us keeping on, do not despair. God is in control. He keeps his promises. He will provide all you need. Keep on keeping on. Don't lose heart. In verses 13 to 17, John in his vision encounters an older person who asks him to identify who the great multitude are. John's reply in verse 14 treats the question as a rhetorical question. He hands it back to the older bloke. And it's here that John's experience in the series of visions is confirmed. He's witnessing the great rejoicing in the victory of good over evil, the salvation of those who took God at his word and placed their lives in Christ's hands despite what obstacles and tribulation they experienced. They kept on keeping on. As a result, they, we, have an invitation to the victory celebration, a celebration that lasts forever. 
Now, I've been to parties where people get disappointed when it, <laughs> when it ends after, what, a few hours. This is going to go for a long time. We just party on in heaven over the victory of Jesus on the cross. And look at the tenfold experience in store for those present at the celebration, and that's in verses, uh, what is that, 15 to the end. Here they are, ten points. Before the throne of God, serving in the temple of heaven continuously, God spreads his tent over us. That is, he protects us from harm as a hen covers her chicks with her wings. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more hot sun beating down. Praise the Lord. No extreme heat in the presence of, the, and, presence of and protected by Jesus himself. Drinking the living water he provide, provides for life. No more sadness, no more sorrow. That's a pretty good gig, isn't it? Being there. And that's the promise of God for those who put their faith in him through his son Jesus. Who deal with their sins by confessing them and asking for forgiveness and committing their life to Jesus. There is a great future for those who love Jesus. It is my personal belief that we have a great present as well. The Holy Spirit that inspired the apostles to change from fearful men hiding in an upper room to fearless preachers of the gospel and followers of the Lord Jesus is available to us also. We have him living inside us. Jesus promised that he would do that. In, in John's Gospel, you can read that around about 13 and 14. We have the privilege and power of prayer to ask God for anything. And as we've seen, we have a great future of eternity spent in fellowship with the one who loves us enough to die in our place. Sinful former enemies of God eating at his table. What could be more gracious than that? Maybe you've never considered where you'll end up after life on this planet. Maybe you've spent your life in church but never really committed yourself fully to the care of Jesus. What we read in Revelation 7 helps us to see that God is in control, that he keeps his promises and one of those promises is the ultimate victory celebration over all evil over Satan, over the demons that Jesus recognised and dealt with, over those who opposed Christians or ignored his offer of forgiveness and salvation through faith in Jesus. May I urge those of you who have never taken the step of faith to accept Jesus' promises and his offer of forgiveness to consider what the Bible is telling us here. May I also encourage you to pray for our broken and divided world that God's reign will be acknowledged and our loved ones outside the kingdom will be brought in. God's plans never alter. He is determined to bring the faithful into his heaven. Don't get left behind. Talk to someone today about this and or make the choice now to be at God's celebration party for Jesus. I hope you found this helpful. I know it's been a bit long, but it's very important for us to understand where we stand in relationship to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is a great revelation of just who you are and what your plans are and your record as far as your faithfulness goes. We thank you, Father, for the, the wonderful gift of the Lord Jesus who has made it possible for us to approach you like this, to speak to you in this way and to ask you for your help as we seek to live for you in this world. We do pray for our world, Father, it is in bad shape and we just pray that you would uh, deal with those 
who think they have the power and conform them to your will. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.